weeks ago, we started this series, Messy Church, First and Second Corinthians. Last week, we took a tiny little break because we were at the park. Who's at the park with us? Hey, my name is you, buddy. Was that fun or what? That was so fun. That was so good. We should do that every week, shouldn't we? Yeah, I think so. It was a little hot, though, wasn't it? Just a little hot. Somebody said I should preach on hell while we were there. We would have had so many converts under the sun. They'd be like, oh, I don't want this. And so we had a great time. It was a lot of fun. We just loved being there with you and seeing everybody together. And now that we're engaged back in the fall, and you're getting into a routine, we're in this series about church and church stuff. And we're going through these two letters that the Apostle Paul wrote. And we want you to do a couple things as we go through this series, okay? Just to engage and to help you get something out of it. Uh, we want you to read through first and second Corinthians as we go through the series. And my hope is that you'll and do one of a few things. Maybe you'll just get the e-news. If you'll get our email, you can sign up for that out at Delani. Um, it tells you exactly what I'm preaching from in the passage, and you can just read that in the week. In fact, you could have read this, is, this week's passage in about three minutes, I think. Um, one of my board of my friends is reading through a chapter a day as we go through the series and just kind of plowing through and then starting over and reading it again and again. And if you've read much of Paul, then you know this, that you can read the Gospels, and they seem pretty self-explanatory and very basic and just very accessible. For somebody like me, who really you know, likes it simple, so good. When you get into reading some of the words of the Apostle Paul, it can be, it can be confusing. Anybody confused by what Paul writes? Anybody? Just three of you? Awesome. That's right. It's the most intelligent church I've ever been a part of. And so the only way to kind of get your head and your arms around what Paul's saying is really two things. you got to read it. Then you read it again. Then you go back and read it again. And then the other thing we want you to do as you do that is talk about it with some other people. And so you sit out with somebody and say, I read this. I was confused. What do you think? And they say, I was confused too. Let's find somebody who's not confused and we can talk about it. Or this was meaningful to me. Or out of this whole chapter, this was the only nugget I got. And believe me, most of us, if we could live out one nugget of scripture in a week, well, we'd be so much more like Jesus, wouldn't we? If we just held something in front of us and lived it that way. And so we want you to do that. And you can do that with friends you have, when you go to our church. You can get connected to a men's study or a ladies' study. Or you can see one of the groups that we'll kind of unveil and talk about over the next couple of weeks. They're going to happen on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. It will help you get connected and have some conversations around these scriptures. That would be great. As we jump into the messy church now, really for most of the call. When I was growing up, I went to a church, and in the church I was in, in the name of the church was the word Christian. And so, as far as I knew, I didn't really understand the whole of all the churches out there. I went to a Christian church. I had a buddy who was a Baptist. They know what that was. I had a buddy who was a Lutheran church. They know what that was. Lived next door with some Catholic friends, and they were really involved in the Catholic church. I went to the Catholic school, and I didn't know it was a more uniform, so I didn't want to go there. One of my best friends, his dad was in the Salvation Army. I had for sure no idea what that was because he had a rank and wore a uniform. And I thought, that sounds awful. And so all I knew is that my church was a Christian church. And one of these days I was with one of my buddies and we were chatting about what we had done at youth group or church or camp or something. And his mom walked in and she said to me, what kind of church do you go to? And I thought, well, that's a silly question. It's a church, you know. So I thought about the name of my church, and I said, oh, well, I go to a Christian church. Thinking, you know, that was the kind of church that I was a part of. And she 
embarrassed when she said, well, all of our churches are Christian. I mean, what kind of Christian are you? And I had no idea how to answer that. I thought, your your boy's not a Christian, he's a Baptist. You know, this is what I thought, because he had a different label, a different name. I had no idea. And so awkward, you know, and this was the beginning of my education about what it means to be a Christian and disagree with other Christians. So here's a way that we've not, we've not done this before. I guess it'll be free to remind me. Uh, we just got out of somebody might turn the lights up a little bit. Um, I want to find out where you're from, statewide. So here, I'm going to read down the list of uh, churches and denominations. And so here's the deal. I want you to stand up when I read something that you have, some history or some heritage with. Some of you, somebody had the earlier service set up four times, so yeah, that's cool. All that means is you're a Muslim, right? That's all it means. You're just a spiritual mother. And so that's fine. Um, I can say that now because he's not here anymore. We'll talk about you next week. So, and then I, I just want you to stay standing until I say stand, okay? And so it could be your parents' heritage or the church you went to when you were very little or the thing that got you involved in faith. And then we'll ask about none. Maybe, maybe there's somebody in the room. Um, there was a first service that really had zero church background and ended up here just sort of, you know, um, not, not because they came from any other church or any other faith history, okay? And so let's just start with uh, Catholic. Who had grew up and has a Catholic heritage? Go ahead and stand up. There's a good number of people in early church, too, that had a Catholic heritage. And when we saw how many folks in our church had Catholic heritage, I started thinking we should sell indulgences or something. Because you'd be up for that, wouldn't you? You'd be down with that? Okay, you got see. Okay, how many of you grew up or have some sort of Baptist heritage? Go ahead and stand up. Okay. Stay standing. And this is what's interesting about Baptists. I say Baptist, and you think I mean your Baptist, right? But you're all different Baptists. In fact, there's more different kinds of Baptists than there are different kinds of Christians. There are. Not that all Baptists aren't Christians, but certainly all Christians aren't Baptists. And so, when you were part of a church, then you knew this to be the case until you met these other Baptists that believe different than you. And so there's Southern Baptists, and there's Anabaptists, and there's Old Regular Baptists. It was close to our house growing up, an Old Regular Baptist church. And it wasn't because it was old or because it was regular. It's because it was an Old Regular Baptist church. And it had a very unique set of beliefs. And so we're glad for the Baptist church. Are you thankful for the Baptist church and what they taught you? Yeah? And the baggage that you have? Okay, you can have a seat. Very good. How many of you would claim a Lutheran background? Lutheran background. Kind of first cousins to the covenant, if you will. Lutheran background is so good. Your patron saint, gentleman who helped you get started, what was his name? Martin Luther. That's right. That's right. Very good. Glad you're here. You're very peaceful people. We're thankful for that. And in addition to the Lutherans, my first cousins to the Lutherans as well, would be the United Methodists. So United Methodists stand up. And so if we drop the names, Charles Wesley or John Wesley, you know who we're talking about, right? And their deep entrenchment, their understanding of faith, that's very good. We had more, more Methodists here than we had in the other service. And I grew up, before I was in a part of that Christian non-denominational church, we grew up in the United Methodist Church. So I was sprinkled, and I was ever since adult. It seems like going to heaven for sure. 
until my dad fell asleep in church over and over again and you had nothing to church. Maybe you had that experience too. I hope not. Glad you're here. You know what I mean? you grew up in a Presbyterian background. That's pretty good. Now I'm seeing more repeat people. This is good. That's good. So you know what that means? If you show up at church and you go, you know, not bad, but I think I like, and then you go next door, pretty good, but I think I like, and then you keep going, right? And so this Presbyterian background, you know where your roots are from, right? You know, the great country of Scotland, not to be confused with Ireland. Don't make that mistake. John Calvin, John Knox, the great reformers. Incredible, thoughtful, intelligent men. I mean, dead wrong theology, but really smart. Really smart people. Really smart. Okay, you're going to have a seat. So good. What about Episcopalian? Anybody, any Episcopalians in the room? So good. So, do we need to get some counseling? Or? Right on. So good. So good. I don't know if you know, the Episcopalian is really just a fancy name for the Church of England. Church of England. So we came over, we came over, and Episcopalians were essentially Yankees who were part of the Anglican Church. And because we came over, we left the Church of England. We couldn't call it that here. You can't come to the United States and have the Church of England, so we just called it Episcopalian. And uh, so we're glad that you're here. And you're undercover from the Church of England is what you are. So very good. You have a seat. What about the Covenant Church? You might grow up in the Covenant Church. Very good. Our roots as the Covenant Church go all the way back to not Ireland, not Scotland, but do you know? Sweden, or sorry, or Swedish. And early 1900s, late 1800s, the formation of this body, along with a couple other denominations that sprang up about the same time, is a beautiful heritage. You know, I'm not making fun of the covenant today. So, yeah. How many of you grew up in non-denominational uh, churches? How many of you grew up in a non-denominational? That's so good. That's so good. Usually what that means is, is uh, we call ourselves non-denominational because we went to a denomination and we said, well, they've got it wrong. So we're going to go make it our own deal. But we're not going to give it a name because our church we trace back to the book of Acts. That's where our church started, right? In fact, it's the same perspective that the people who were Catholic have. First Pope was Peter. That's right. And so the church that wins in our culture, especially in academic or theological circles, is a church if they can trace their roots back to the purest form of the church, which is the book of Acts or the church of Corinth in the first century. Because we assume that the churches that can go all the way back that far surely had it right. Until you read first and second Corinthians, you realize they were a mess as well. And so are uh, non-denominational churches. So you get a seat. All right, who grew up uh, in, in no church background at all? No, none, no, no church anybody in the room? Can't really claim a heritage at all? And one individual. So that means we have work to do in our community, which is great. We want them here. Anybody grow up with a charismatic background? That's good. That's good. So raise your hands if you were in a charismatic background. That's what you're used to, right? And so Josh said after first service, you didn't mention the charismatics. That's, that's true. I didn't. So we should mention them at this service. And you maybe didn't know that about Josh. That Josh grew up charismatic church, parents were charismatic in Newfoundland, and which is unusual. Our community charismatics in Newfoundland is far too cold to be charismatic. <laughs> 
And so you understand our backgrounds when you look at the variety of Christians in the room. Think about this. You just saw it. You know this already. It's great to illustrate it. You know that every church that we listed, every denomination that we named, they all venerate and worship the person of Jesus. They believe solidly in the death and the burial and the resurrection. They understand and under, they have the same understanding of Scripture, broadly speaking, and in many times, just very specifically, like the same worldview when it comes to understanding who God is, His Creator and Redeemer. Yet at some point along the way, they decided, I can't walk with you. You started something new, and it created such divisions. And that happened again, and it happened again, and it happened again. So interesting, Jesus' prayer in John 17, the night before he was killed, his prayer had one central theme. I pray that all those who believe in me, that they would be what? One. One. How well is that prayer being lived out by the followers of Christ? Splinter after splinter after splinter. And it didn't just start with the Reformation. It didn't start with the beginning of the Baptist Church that continued to splinter over and over and over again. It started in the first century, mere years after the church began and was born. So as we begin this series, know this. We'll give you a background as we go through the series, but here's the thumbnail sketch. The Apostle Paul, called by God as a planter of churches and evangelists, traveled all over Europe. He traveled to a city called Corinth. We'll talk about the city as we go through the series as well. And he stayed there for about a year and a half, planted a church there. And when he left, the church was in good shape and just a fledgling body of Christ beginning to move and grow. And then he began to hear reports about things that were going wrong and he began to address those. Now, second, first Corinthians is probably really second Corinthians. It's probably the second letter that Paul wrote to the church. We don't have the first letter. So we have first Corinthians. We're catching up with Paul. He's written a letter before. He's had many conversations with people from Corinth. And so what Paul's going to do is he begins this letter is begin to address the problems of the church. Now, a lot of what Paul writes, Romans, incredibly theological, Philippians, all about the joy, and so on and so forth. But Paul gets very nitty and gritty when he begins the letter of 1 Corinthians because he's worried about these people. He wants them to understand what it means to be a church, to be followers of Christ that relate together. And he doesn't want them to go off the rails. And the things that he taught to the Corinthians about could not be more applicable than than today. It's almost as if Paul looked at our churches and wrote this letter. And the second one too, which is why we're going through it. So right when he begins the letter, he begins to cause issues. He's dealt with his greetings. He's dealt with the hello, glad you're here, I love you. We're all in this together. And then he gets right to business and he points out the first problem and he says this. There are, say it with me, there's what? Quarrels among you. Now when you read that, you might think, well, that sounds like a three or four-year-old just not getting along at the dinner table. And that really undersells it. Paul is saying there's divisions among you. There's arguments among you. 
There are people in your midst that are contending for their way over somebody else's way so strongly that in the life of your church and when you gather as a church body, this tension can center stage. If you walked into a church today that was just like Corinth, you would see factions in the lobby and discussions and meetings occurring between people who are pitting themselves against other people and disagreeing, and you would see hatred, disunity, name-calling, gathering an army, inviting people to their side, and dismissing other people and ignoring others. Love would be absent, and contention and divisiveness would be center stage. And this is what Paul says is happening in the church at Corinth. And then in that same verse, he kind of outs where he gets the info from. He kind of lets everyone know in the church. He receives the letter who his appointment was. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household. We don't know who Chloe is. Chloe was sort of a well-to-do name, so maybe she was wealthy. Maybe she had some power in the community or some power within the church. We have no idea. But somebody from her household, they have informed me that there are quarrels among you. And when I read this, this was my question. I really wanted to think this through because we know that all Scripture is God-breathed, right? And it's useful for all of us at all times to make us more like Jesus. So the question I wanted to ask is, well, what are the quarrels? I mean, really, come on. What kind of fights could be going on in a church like that? That's my question that you and me will wrestle with for a moment. What could possibly be causing the quarrels among the followers of Jesus in Corinth? Can you imagine what it would be? I mean, come on. These are Jewish men and women, some who make up the church, and they have embraced the gospel of Jesus, which means they have set aside the weight of the law, and now they walk free in grace. And they no longer have to worry about remembering that Moses said this, and don't do this, and what's it, is it Exodus, is it Leviticus, which part of the law am I living by, and how do I now engage in a sacrifice? No, 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 it's the gospel that has been given to them, and they live now free free to live, free in Christ. Absolutely incredible. Well, what could be weighing them down that they would want to argue about it? And the ones who aren't Jewish men and women, they're Gentiles. And let's be honest, the Gentiles have been kept estranged from God, and they had to become Jewish to even have a hope in all of knowing who God is. And now Paul has come along and said, there is no Jew, no Greek, no male, no female. We're all one in Christ. And now they're in the church. They're experiencing, again, the depth of God's grace and His mercy. I mean, what in the world could people in a church be arguing about when they live under this amazing umbrella of God's love and grace? Can you imagine? How many people up in a church? Can you picture what a church would be arguing about? Why don't you help me? What could they be arguing about? Building a bigger church. You can argue with that. No, but I like the size. But we're called to evangelize the lost. And we're going to need to spend money on it. Can you imagine what they argue about there? What else will they argue about? Leadership? Who's in charge? Who's more important? Who has the authority? Who says what? Who do we obey? I can't imagine a church not saying about that. What else could they be arguing about? Music. What do you think, Josh? Have you ever seen a church argue about music? Once or twice. What about the music? What they have? Music is beautiful. It's the love language of the soul. What would you argue about when it comes to the music? What? 
but we have the exact same allegiances today. And as we express them, we paint people into a place in faith. And we ascribe to them beliefs or opinions. And we decide whether or not we can journey with them based on this exact scenario. And so you hear that somebody listens to or reads John MacArthur, and your immediate thought is, well, there's a legalist. We'll hang around them. And then your friends pick up a book by Rod Bell, and now they don't even believe in hell? Oh, you gotta be kidding me. How could you read something that's so full of heresy? Somebody watches Joel Osteen. That's not even church. You might as well go to the church of Oprah. Unbelievable. And how we paint people into a corner. And now they're not people, they're theological positions. Or they're running down a road that's surely going to lead them into theological error. And these are just the church implications. Overlay the very same issue with our political climate. I follow who? To where? For what reason? See, what was going on in the church of Corinth? It can't be that they just liked Peter's preaching a little bit better. It can't be that they were just very appreciative of the way Apollos taught them about Jesus. I mean, they didn't stay in the church lobby and say, yeah, have you met Apollos? He's really sincere. I think you'll really enjoy him. They went beyond that, didn't they? They got deeper than that. Their opinions created division, and their division created brokenness and destroyed togetherness. In fact, we would say it this way. Here's what was happening. The believers in Corinth allowed their differences to derive a relational wedge between them and their neighbors. Well, if you're going to believe that, we can't walk together. It's more than just a quarrel. It's being contentious. It's focusing on what's different instead of what is the same. And Paul knows as he hears about the quarrels and the nature of their discussions that this church is about to come apart the seams. And unless they take a different approach, there's no coming back. It's destroyed. Now, not the Dixie church. Jesus said, the church will prevail. But you and I both know that we have seen church after church after church destroyed. By little quarrels that become big disputes and then become a test of fellowship and faith is set aside completely. So Paul gives them an answer. And he tells them how to behave. And here's what you're going to see in the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. The same thing over and over again. Paul looks at the Corinthian church and he says, here's a problem. He identifies it. And then he says, here's how I want you to behave or what I want you to do, how you need to fix this. And then he ties everything about their behavior to the gospel of Christ. In other words, he helps them understand how believing in Jesus will drive their behavior and help them fix the problem that started in the first place. You see all three? The problem, here's how you fix it, and here's why you're going to fix it, because Jesus is the fill of blank, and he explains this over and over and over again. So here's what he says is the solution. This quarreling church that cannot get along, he says this, 
I appeal to you, brothers, so in the first chapter, just verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, say it with me, yellow, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. Say it again with me, okay? And then while you're saying it, listen to what you're saying and the absolute unbelievability that Paul asked them to engage in, okay? Here's what he says, say it with me, that all of you agree with one another in what you say. You don't even agree with yourself, let alone somebody sitting next to you, let alone somebody that has a different theological position that you know without a doubt they're dead wrong, and thank God that he brought you into their lives to fix them for it. What is Paul saying when he says, I want you to agree with one another when you say, that's just the first thing he says. He goes on to say this, not only that, but that there would be no divisions among you. Now, I like it when you read, but that you would be, say it with me, perfectly united in mind and in thought. You have got to be kidding me. How in the world could Paul, could Paul suggest such lofty, unattainable, unreasonable directives and goals? And yet this is what he says. If you've got to make it through as a church, I don't care what's going on. Color carpet, baptism, theological disagreement. Here's what you do. Here's what you do. You agree with one another on what you say. There will be no divisions among you. And that you will be perfectly united in mind and in thought. That's Paul's solution. So that's what you do. In other words, if you're thinking about behaving in a different way, when you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, you're thinking about engaging in a theological debate or argument, you go back to verse 10 of chapter 1, read it again, and put yourself in check, and be sure that your behavior is in line with that. If it's not, then you go to timeout or whatever. Then you come back and put your behavior in line with that. Now, if when you were growing up, your parents gave you instructions, and you just dutifully lowered your hand and followed instructions, then the sermon's over, you're good, right? You just do that. Anybody in the room ask why after your parents give them instructions? Anybody ask why? Okay, so if you're like me and you ask why, then you need the next 10 minutes of the sermon, okay? Because now Paul is going to tie it to the gospel and give you the reason why. But let's be honest, our problems of disagreement and tension and difficulty and relational strife would be solved if we behaved that way, wouldn't it? If we decided, I'm going to be sure there's no division among us, I'm going to agree, even though I disagree, I'm going to agree with one another in what we say, I'm going to be perfectly united in mind and thought. But if you think, well, I don't know why he says to do that, because I think what I learned is important. I think I want to bring somebody along. I think they need the gift of my knowledge and wisdom. Then we read further, because in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us the problem, how we should behave, and the why behind it. And the why behind it, if you really need it, you be warned. It stings a bit. Okay? Here's what it says. So brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So I want you to do the same thing. 
He tells the Corinthians, these men and women, grew up in Corinth, this is their hometown. Think back to who you were and what you were when you were to know Jesus. Before you knew about salvation, before you knew about God's love, for some of you, that's when you were really young. Think back to who you were, where your heart was. And then he says this, not many of you were what? Wise by human standards. What's he saying? You're not that smart. I told you these things. You're not that smart. Now you're good people, hard workers, thoughtful individuals, but you're not that smart. Remember where you were before Jesus called you? Remember the sin you were stuck in? Remember the way your mind was confused about what was right, what was wrong, what was up, what was down? Remember that? Remember who you were? You're not that wise. Not many of you were wise by human standards, and not many of you were what? In other words, you're also not that important. You're really not. I mean, I know you are, you're a little world, but you're not that important. Honestly, most of us, whatever job we do, whoever we are, when we step away one day, they're going to replace us with somebody else the next. And um, by next Tuesday, they'll be like, oh, what was his name? You're not that influential. And you're not that wise. Paul says more about that. And not many of you were of what? You were even born into importance. As some of you may have been. Maybe you were wise, but by human standards, you're not. Not that influential. You're not that smart. What does he mean? Why would Paul be so offensive to the Corinthians? He's already given them some hard instructions that are hard to live by. Why would Paul remind them who they are and give them a healthy dose of humility? Most people are willing to sacrifice a relationship because they are right and they think they're right. And they'll gladly be right instead of loving. And here's what Paul knows. Paul knows that the command that Jesus gave is not that you be theologically correct, not that you have all the answers, but that you would, what? Love one another. How? As Jesus loved you. That's what he knows. That you would place love over your desire to be right. And so the Corinthians, they argue with a lot of the church. They actually are meeting in homes. You know how church going go. And so sometimes they gather in the synagogue. And as they gather, they assert their opinions. And then they become more affirmed in their opinions. And they decide that being right or having their way or having their idea win the day is more important than looking at somebody else in their church with compassion and love and forgiveness and grace. And so Paul says, I hear there are quarrels among you. I know some of you are thinking, come on, if somebody's wrong, should we set them straight? I mean, aren't I God's gift to the theological accuracy of this church? I would say, no, 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 no. Like Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will lead you into truth. Not your neighbor, not your friend. But without a preacher, how will they hear? Oh, no, no, nothing else. God leads us all into a path of agreement. So what Paul says is, look, if it's, if it's so cool you think differently, God will make it clear to you. It's not your job. It's not my job. How many times has a relationship faltered because you were more concerned about being right than being loving? 
and ask you a question. This is just whether people agree on that or fifty and up. Okay? Fifty and over. Just listen close. And pay attention, don't miss it. Those of you who are fifty and over, the list of things in your mind and in your heart that you are absolutely certain of. Fifty and over. As you have gone grow older, wiser. Is that list getting longer or shorter? Answer. Why? Why would you sacrifice a relationship for something that you're going to change your mind about later? You say, but I'm sure I'm not saying that you don't know. This is why Jesus said to love. Because we're fallible. Because we learn as we grow. Because unity doesn't happen because we all actually agree, but because we act agreeable and loving with one another. This is what brings unity in a body full of people. Here's another way to say that. Be careful, don't be mistaken. Today's heretics are tomorrow's saints. So be careful. When I talked about that two weeks ago, wait till they unlearn the mistake. Just so that people have a Bible in their hands. Well, who put him to death? Uh, the church did. Not just William Tyndale. Over and over, Martin Luther, Brandon, they had to take by the church. His job, he, he wasn't planning on starting a church. The Reformation meant that he was going to reform the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church ran him a heretic and kicked him out. He had no choice. And I just Luther kind of went the same way. John Mark. The list is long. You can go into the world of science. Galileo would have been killed and martyred had he not recanted and said what he knew, what he knew was not to be true. So be careful what you hang your absolute certainty on. So you're not going to smart. Don't sacrifice a relationship for it. And then Paul goes on to give you more theological reasons. So if you're still wanting some why. He gives it to you, and it's this right here. Still in chapter 1, he says this, It is because of him, because of God, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. You didn't figure it out yourself. You didn't find your way because you thought, I just need God. No, no, no. It's God who made you that way. It's God who wills it. It's God who creates it. It's God that brings you into a relationship with him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus. Who has become for us wisdom from God. In other words, you're not that wise. You had wisdom. Where did it come from? Well, God gave it to you. It doesn't belong to you. And that's not all that doesn't belong to you. But what else doesn't belong to you? Our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. In other words, you owe it all to God. Every bit of it. Your ability to breathe. Your ability to think. Your ability to worship, your ability to love, it all comes from God. When you have and carry with you this kind of humility, you have zero desire to draw lines in the sand and pit somebody against your own beliefs. Your only reaction is to love. It's to love. To love. And the way to love, Paul says very clearly, let's do it this way. This is. My way of saying what he said in 1 Corinthians 1, and it's this. Let's say it together. 
the common ground. Say it with me. Find the common ground. This is what I'm going to do with people as I interact with them on the link. Can you say it with me? Find the common ground. There's always common ground. Always. And so you find the common ground. And when you find the common ground, you work the ground. You dig it up. You till it. Pull the weeds. So you can see, you water it, you till it again, and you fertilize it, and then you find more common ground, and you watch as your relationship grows in depth, as love opens doors that knowledge can never open. You find the common ground. There's always common ground. And this isn't just about believers, followers of Jesus. It's about everybody. Every relationship you have, you find the common ground. Even as simple as, hey, you're a person. You know what? I'm a person. Look at that. We're people. That's so cool. We're people together. We have so much in common, this peopleness. This is amazing. We can start there. That's what I'm going to find that ground. I'm going to tell it. I'm going to work it. No weatherproofing. You know what that means? No weatherproofing. You know what weatherproofing is, right? So when it gets cold, you feel draft in your house because then you have to know where it's coming from. So you shut the house up, and you turn on the heat, and then you walk around and you feel for the weak spots, you feel for the place where the cold air is coming in so you can fix it and address it. This is what some people do in their relationships. It's good to know you. What church do you go to? Well, I'm going to weatherproof this relationship. No weatherproofing. When I weatherproof it, I poke around for the weakness. For the place that we're different, so that I can fix you. Because I'll be better friends with you if I can fix you to think like me. And if we can think alike, then we can go far together. Paul says, no, no. You agree in unity, and you find common ground. God takes care of the rest. Does that mean I can't share an opinion? No, no, no. Differences will come up. Here's what happens. Don't miss it. If you've tilled the common ground, when the differences come up, there's so much love in that relationship, they will fracture the unity at all. Not at all. Your relationship can survive and even thrive with the difference. Why? Because they know how you feel about them. They know that love is center stage. So don't ever weatherproof. Don't work on the weakness. Don't come up. Find the common ground. This isn't just my idea, this is all through scripture. You read scripture with this idea in mind and you'll see it over and over and over again. Before Paul went to Corinth, in fact, right before he went to Corinth, he made a stop in a, a very metropolitan city. It's a city in Athens. And when he stopped in Athens, it was the, the intellectual, the philosophical capital of the world. Stoic philosophers love to come to Athens and debate the latest ideas and discuss how life works. And most people at Athens have never heard of Jesus, let alone surrendered their life to him. So Paul shows up and he begins to walk through the city and he sees idol after idol after idol. I mean, it's a very religious place, completely devoid of God. And what does Paul do? He finds the common ground. Here's what he does. He walks in. He's with a group that's gathering to discuss the latest ideas, and he says this, Men of Athens, this is incredible, so, so exciting. Men of Athens, I noticed that you are what? 
very religious in every way. Yeah, come on. I'm going to walk in and say, I see you're full of idols, so you're all going to hell. And they're going to kick me out. Paul walks in and says, I see you're very religious. I command you from all. As, as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines, and one of your altars had this inscription on to an unknown God. And then he says this, this God, whom you worship without even knowing, I want to tell you about it. And then he talks about Jesus. And they're so intrigued, and they're so intellectual, and they're so sort of disconnected from their hearts and say, we want to have you back to discuss this again later. And yet some surrender their lives and their minds to Jesus in every way. This is what it means to find common ground. And so, have you sacrificed the relationship because you know what's right? Have you put a priority on agreement rather than love? Maybe you should find somebody this week who voted different than you in the last election and find common ground. It is going to get so much worse over the next year. You know that? The tension in our culture. You know what's going to be missing in our culture? Are men and women who have the ability to love and find common ground. If you can do that, you will stick out in your office like a sore thumb and people will be drawn to you in your neighborhood, in your family. Love, find common ground, and watch what God will do. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask in this moment that you would reign supreme. This message that Paul shares of the gospel, that, that none of our righteousness, none of our holiness belongs to us, so that we come and we repent of pride. We repent, we, we repent deeply of this knowledge of pride. This idea that we have the right answer, or that we have it figured out, or that we have read scripture and we astutely understand all of the theological underpinnings of the gospel, Lord, we repent. And we ask that you would forgive us when we have chosen to, to be right instead of love. And so, in the relationships around us, we ask that you would give us a heart and a desire to find common ground. Give us the humility that is needed to love well. For so many of us, we confess, and we love with such reservation, and we believe that somebody would just surrender or change or alter or quit behaving this way or that way, and we would love them completely. And Lord, that's not love at all. That's just a, a masquerade of love. Lord, help us to live out the command of Jesus that we would love one another the way he loved us. And how did he love us? While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Help us to love like that. And so, Lord, we want to live this way, not just because Paul instructs it, but because the gospel demands it. So we declare that Jesus is the only one worthy of our praise. And that all power to live this way, certainly unnatural, comes because of the name of Jesus alone.